Let's pray. Father God, you have been so good to us. You've made us in your likeness. And even when we've sinned against you in in grievous ways and, and brought great displeasure to you, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, you hear our prayers and you answer them. And even when we feel like the prayer request has gone on so long that maybe the answer is just going to be no, you still answer them. And you still hear us and you are so faithful, God. And you've given us so much in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would fix our eyes firmly on our Savior. Fix our eyes upon Jesus to look full to His wonderful grace. So that the things around would become strangely dim. Lord, we look to you. Father, we pray that as we open your word, Lord, would you confront our sin? Would you speak to us about our sin? And would you speak to us about what Jesus has done for us? And it's in his holy and most precious name, the name above every name that we pray. Amen. The movie Miracle uh, about the 1980 U.S. hockey team uh, showed well a pivotal moment for that team. Coach Herb Brooks had brought together a team from all over the U.S. uh, building what he thought would be a dream team, and it was filled with all kinds of rivalry of whose college was best and who who was the better hockey player and, and all kinds of things like that. And Um, In one of their games leading up to the Olympics, as they were getting used to being a team, they had a really disappointing game followed by some exhausting drills. And periodically, the coach would tell a player in order to try and build team unity, he'd have players say their name, their hometown, and who they played for. And guys would say, oh, I'm so-and-so from this town, and I play for Minnesota or or Michigan or um, one of the other hockey powers of the time. And um, so at, after these exhaustible drills, he asked one of the players what his name, who he was. Tell us about yourself. And he gave his name and his hometown. And then he said, I play for. And instead of listing his college, his alma mater, which would have only led to more uh, kind of bitterness from other players or one-upmanship or whatever, he just said, I play for the United States of America. And instead of naming the jersey he used to wear, he named the jersey he was currently wearing, which happened to be the same jersey as everyone else. And this was a turning point, especially in the movie. This was the turning point. This is when they got good. But the reason they got good was because they were unified enough to go after their goals. And they were unified enough to actually accomplish something. 
We're diving back into the book of Philippians now. We, we went through chapter 1 uh, a couple months ago. Now we're getting to chapter 2. We'll be in chapter 2, I think, until about June 7th, uh, if I remember the, the calendar correctly that, that I wrote. Um, and Philippians, uh, where we left off, Paul, uh, Pastor Josh gave the message. It was actually week 2 of this. Uh, Pastor Josh gave a great message on let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And now in chapter 2, he does a quick shift to unity. Uh, Bible commentator and pastor Kent Hughes says, there are no letters in the New Testament apart from the problems in the church. And so as we read Philippians, and really as you read any letter in the New Testament, it, it's helpful to ask, now what problem was there that this could have been written to address? And in Philippians, we don't have a specific issue. Like, you know, 1 Corinthians is a catalog of issues for the church. We don't have that in Philippians. It's overall a really uplifting letter. And here he exhorts them and encourages them towards unity. And we don't know what the specific issues of tension were in that church, but we know the issues of the early church in looking at Acts and other churches, how widows who were Greekish, the Hellenistic widows, were being overlooked. Uh, they, there were people lying about the offering. There were people suing each other, sleeping with people they weren't married to. They were imposing rules that God doesn't. They were flaunting their spiritual freedom. Um, and, and holding that over each other. Uh, there was a lack of discipline in the church. There was too much discipline in the church. It was, it was anything and everything. And all of these create disunity. They paint a picture of a team having members scoring points for the, for the opposition. And Paul's approach here, as he comes to telling this church to be unified isn't a legalistic list of do's and don'ts on how to be unified. Instead, he redirects their attention to what ultimately unifies all of us. The finished work of Christ and the effect that it has on us. Now, I, I don't really care who you were before you came to Christ. Once you are in Christ, we are unified. I, and I, I had a friend that I discipled that was part of a biker gang before he came to Christ. I mean, it's, there's, we were fully unified as brothers in Christ from very different backgrounds. It doesn't matter who you were. It matters who you are. Once you are in Christ, we are unified. We are both new creations with a sealed inheritance in heaven. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We don't always agree, and that's the challenge. So how do we maintain unity while not agreeing? How can we ever experience the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer? You know, remember in John 17, he says, Father, I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one, that they would be one. How are we ever going to find that kind of unity that he and the Father had? How can we find Christ-like unity? Well, I'm going to start reading in Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort 
from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I know what you all did. All of you, when you realized how much I was reading, checked to see how much time was remaining in the sermon. Uh, I just want to let you know, uh, we're spending two weeks on these 11 verses. Uh, this week, we're going to emphasize the first five. We'll talk about all of them, but mainly the first four or five verses, and then next week, the rest of them. And so how can we find Christ-like unity? First of all, by remembering the personal work of the gospel, we strive for gospel-oriented Christ-like unity. We remember the work of the gospel. Now, Verses 1 and 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Any unity in a church is a supernatural thing. For a church of any size to come together and be unified is supernatural. There's the old joke of a guy that was stranded on an island by himself, and when they found him, there were three buildings, and he said, the first one's my home, the second one's my church, and they said, well, what's the third one? He said, well, that's, that's the church I used to go to. We had a split. Um, there's, anytime there's unity in a church, it is supernatural. And so I want us to do one thing. First, as we think of unity in our church being supernatural, I want us to remember that our unity is supernatural. This is a, this, any unity we have is about the work of God, not what we have in common apart from Christ. Let me restate that. Any unity we have as a church is because of God's work in us, not because of what we have in common outside of Christ. Our unity as a church does not reflect political unity. As your pastor, I know it doesn't because sometimes I get to talk to you guys and that comes up. I know we're not politically unified. It doesn't talk about being sports unified. I know that because of all the angry emails I got after the Nebraska mug incident a couple weeks ago. You guys, I mean, some of that was just a little cruel. No, just kidding. You were, you were gentle with me with that. And it has nothing to do with our upbringing. Our unity in Christ doesn't, it's not those things. It's not your sports, your hobbies, your politics, your upbringing. It's, it's not your race. Our unity in Christ transcends all that. I mean, the vision of unity in Christ is, is when every tongue, tribe, and nation is praising the name of Jesus in the book of Revelation. I, I want to let you know something, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Pastor Hightow Chen and I have more in common 
than myself and another white guy from Omaha born in 1981. My friend here at Westchester, Harry and Shore Gabo, I probably said his last name wrong. My brother Harry and I have more in common because of Christ than another white guy born in Omaha, Nebraska in 1981 who went to Omaha North High School who doesn't know Christ. You, you pick the, the tribe, the language, the tongue. If that person knows Christ, they have more in common with you than a neighbor who doesn't. This is a supernatural unity because as Christians, our life is a supernatural one. We have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. We've been, our sins have been nailed to the cross, setting aside their legal demands for the open shame of Satan. We have that in common with each other as believers. And someone who was born in the same city as me the same year, who cheered for all the same teams, went to the same schools, who's the same ethnicity, who does not know Christ, I don't have nearly as much in common with them as I have with any believer anywhere in the world. And so another thing we need to do, first of all, we need to keep in mind our unity is supernatural. And we also need to celebrate our unity. Westchester, we're a unified church. We've, We've done some really big things in the last six years I've been here. In a very unified way, you guys have done staff transitions, changing our church government structure. We've adopted a daughter church together. And we've done all of that with a very high level of unity. Praise God for that. When the elders get together for our monthly meetings, and we have our prayer sheet for ways we're praying for the church, specific prayer requests, Ministries at the top of the list every month is unity for the church. We pray for unity and we praise God for the unity He's given us. This is supernatural. So Paul goes in verse 1 and 2 and he gives us an if-then statement. And he instructs unity by appealing to their mutual supernatural history, the supernatural unity, with this if-then request. And he says, if You've had any encouragement in Christ. And I want you to pay special attention to the word any. If you've had any encouragement in Christ. Have you ever been encouraged by the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins? That He loves you that much? That He's given you life? That He's equipped you? Have you ever been encouraged by reading His words in the Gospel? That we can find living water in Him? That if we abide in Him, we'll bear fruit? Our only job is to abide? That if we plant seeds of the Gospel, that He makes it grow? Our only job is to plant seeds? He does the actual work of the ministry? Have you ever been encouraged by that? This is... One of the most encouraging things we can find. It is the most encouraging thing we can find. And then he says, if you've had any comfort from love, any comfort from God's love at all, it feels like Paul is deliberately understating these things. It's like if you've ever found ice cream that's good, right? Like, of course you have. It's amazing. If you have any comfort 
from the love of God that Christ died for you while you were still a sinner, from the love of God that go, that's higher than the, than the heavens are above the earth, that love of God, if you have any comfort from that, any participation in the Spirit. Sometimes we don't always realize how active the Holy Spirit is in us. I encourage you to read uh, John 14 and 16 and what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. And just ask, and, and read in 1 Corinthians and see what the Holy Spirit does. The gifts for ministry, the conviction of sin, the leading truth to the truth, the telling us of Christ's coming judgment. The Holy Spirit of God groaning out on our behalf when we don't know what to pray in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit is, is, is so active in the lives of believers. He's our helper. He's sent from Jesus for us. Any affection and sympathy. Have you ever been loved by God, shown sympathy by God, that He would save you? Look at these endings. These are like the most, this is like the basically, if, if you're a Christian, that's what he's saying. I mean, have you ever gone on vacation and then shortly after you, a friend of yours, went to the same place for vacation and had almost all the same pictures and you sit there and you don't go like, oh man, your vacation looks lame or you don't go, my vacation was better. No, you say, oh look, we went to the same place and did the same thing. That's what Paul's saying here. He's like, we all have the same thing. Encouragement from Christ, comfort from his love, participation from the Spirit, affection and sympathy from on high. This, all these things come from God. All these things are true of believers. Our unity with each other has very little, probably nothing to do with each other and a whole lot to do with God. And if our unity were founded on each other, then it would be no different than any after-school affinity club. It would be no different than any of those extracurricular things. Oh, you're on that team, I'm on that team. Look how much we have in common. Our unity goes so much deeper than our interests outside of work or school. Our unity goes to our eternal destiny. Our unity goes to the fact that God loved you so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins. That if you believed in Him, that you won't perish but have eternal life. That's how deep our unity goes. Our, our unity is not based on commonality, but it's based on the gospel. And there's a line here that I want us to see. Because you could be unified on your belief of the gospel, and that's fine and that's good. We're part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, a very large network of churches, of autonomous churches, who have this affiliation with this statement of faith that we agree on. And there's, we have a lot of shared core common values, and doctrine really matters. But Paul isn't talking about being unified by our doctrine. He's not saying you're unified by theological agreement. What Paul is doing is telling them, look at what Christ has done for you, and with that in mind, be unified. Don't be unified... And on, on just a systematic theology, and I know systematic theology helps our understanding of this, but don't be unified just on theology. Be unified on what's been done for you on the cross. 
in all the things you think you understand and all the things you don't understand. Be unified that Jesus died for your sins and has given you new life and the Holy Spirit of God in you. That's what unifies us. On Thursdays, I have a, a, a Zoom call that I really look forward to, and it's a lot of pastors from around the city, from all different denominations. And we are loving the city together. We are praying together. We are grieving with each other. We are rejoicing together. Be, not because we all have the same statement of faith in our offices. Not because we all have the same books in our offices. But because we all have the same Savior. We've all been encouraged by Christ, had participation in the Spirit, comforted by His love, and felt affection and sympathy from on high. If you have felt that, then have true unity. Complete my joy. Paul's joy, his hope, his aspiration for this church is for them to be unified. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord and of one mind. Kent Hughes refers to this as being gospel-oriented, that they would have a, a, a one-mindedness around a gospel. That the, and, and the gospel is what will keep us oriented. The gospel is what will keep us unified that Jesus died for us, and the remembering what the gospel has done for us. Be so set on that, that, that our purpose becomes love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. that because God has loved us, so we should love one another. And being gospel-oriented will always lead us to being other-oriented. It gives us a singular focus on God's glory, not on having church the way we want it. This goes beyond carpet color to the direct worship of God. Not worship style, but the worship of God. Worship style isn't the important thing. The important thing is that God is being glorified. I mean, Westchester got planted as the Swedish Free Mission Church in 1883. Our worship style has changed a few times in that. For example, we no longer sing in Swedish. But God has been glorified in every worship style that's been had. And He'll be glorified in every new worship style that's to come in our future. This is probably a good time to announce uh, that I'm having Austin work on a punk rock worship set. Uh, so be looking forward to that. To be gospel-oriented it matters how we care for each other. It matters how we handle our differences, how we love our community. It matters how we disagree, and it matters a whole lot why we agree. That we don't agree because we all just happen to have the same idea, but we agree because of what Christ has done, and our agreement is on a gospel-oriented trajectory. That we want to see people come to Christ in this neighborhood, at the school across the street. We want to see people come to Christ in the Highland Park neighborhood. We want to see people come to Christ and around the world. We want to see the gospel translated into languages that don't know the name of Jesus yet. And this, I'm going to be unified with each other. We're going to be unified together because of how, uh, 
how Christ has saved us and, and that He saved us, our true unity will have an impact on our time usage. And we're going to get into this in a little bit more, but I, I just want to take time. I'm emphasizing time usage. Um, I, want to, I want to take a moment and just applaud you for your giving. A few weeks ago, we, we put out a call saying our benevolent fund is, is really running low um, and we still have a lot of people to help. I want to let you know we are helping people and that our benevolent fund has had a really nice bounce back. You've been very generous. Thank you so much. You're a good giving church. And we have service needs that are going unmet. Before we went into quarantine, we had holes in our nursery schedule and some of our children's ministry schedules. We've had a lot of holes in our food bank schedule. We need you to give time too. And I'm just going to throw this out there. If you're sick of being at home and really want to connect with some friends and you don't know how to do that, sign up to do food bank together. Sign up to do food distribution together and you will have uh, a great time catching up while you serve together. Our unity is founded on Christ and that's hard work, but we need to keep pressing on for the function, uh, not for the function of the local institution, but for our own soul. Paul's saying, do this for my joy, complete my joy. But there's also a spiritual health aspect. And sometimes we get burned by the church and we think, I love Jesus, but I'm not going to have anything to do with the church. What is the church but the body of Christ? How am I going to say I love Jesus and socially distance myself from the church in a spiritual way? Not in like what we're doing right now, but to say, I'm just not going to be a part of a local fellowship. To grow in Christ, to experience more of Christ's love, you need to be around the body of Christ. And that's hard because in the body of Christ we get division. So the next thing is how we, how we find Christ-like unity is we, uh, verse 3 and 4, we stay in drive while avoiding reverse. We keep moving forward to unity and avoid doing the two steps forward, one step back as best we can. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others uh, more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul makes two parallel statements here, and they both start out with this, don't be greedy, put others before yourself. Don't be selfish, don't be full of vain conceit, look at others as more significant than yourselves. Don't look only to your own interests, the me, 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 but look to the interests of others. I want you to realize this, and maybe, maybe just repeat after me. My pride is the hindrance of unity at Westchester. My pride is the hindrance of unity at Westchester. I, any individual's pride is the hindrance of unity within the church. And worse than being a hindrance, look at what James says about it. If, you, if you're able to, flip over to James 4. Or... Sorry, James 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let, his, let him show his works in meekness and wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you find jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will there will be disorder in every vile practice. Our pride is a problem. Our individual pride is a problem. K 
Kent Hughes, this is the last time I'm going to reference him today. Kent Hughes, there's been a lot of Kent Hughes love today. Uh, He tells a story, this is a true story of a church in Dallas that had, was going through a major split that became so contentious that there were two factions within the church fighting against each other that went to the public courts to sue each other over who should get the church building and property. The judge was wise and said, this is not a matter for public courts to decide. He, he gave them 1 Corinthians. They should have read 1 Corinthians. They, and he sent them back to their denominational leadership and authorities. An investigation was launched over which side was right, which side should get the building. In the investigation, they got down to the root problem. Here was the root of the problem that caused a church to sue itself in the city courts, in the papers, on the news. At a potluck. Someone gave a child a larger piece of ham than one of the church elders. And that selfishness and greed bubbled and boiled and fermented and re-bubbled again and led to a church suing itself. Our selfish ambition, our pride on an individual level, not someone else's pride, my pride, and, and I want you to say that for yourself, is the problem. This is very much a pull the log out of your own eye before you take the stick out of your neighbor's eye. Our pride is what hinders. And pride in the church in America is a big deal. There are a lot of people who will, in pride, look for the fastest growing church, try and build the fastest growing church. And we've seen it time and time again in America that churches will hire gifting before they hire morality. And so we see pastors get these big churches, they blow up in numbers, they have books, and then something comes out and they get fired because they hired a prideful person who could grow their church before they hired someone who kept a close watch on their life and doctrine in order to prolong the life of their listeners, like what Paul tells Timothy. Another area we see pride in the church in America is segregation. The church is the most segregated institution in America. And, and yeah, there's, there's racism and cultural prejudice. But when you boil those down, you get pride and selfishness and fear. They keep us in a cultural comfort zone that excludes us from a kingdom of God experience that we can have so that the sports team down the road does a better job of unifying people in our city and in our state than the gospel does. And that's a sad thing. And, um, and I want us, as we consider that, to take a close look at ourselves. And maybe you're feeling some resentment and some pushback and saying, Chuck, I don't know what you're saying here. I'm not racist. And I would never categorize myself that way. But here's two things I know well. I know my family history, and I know about generational sin. And generational sin impacts me more than I realize. And so I need to make sure I take care of myself. Another thing that pride in America shows up in is missional competition, where you have churches competing for a group in their city and not working together to build the kingdom of God. I talked about that Thursday call with pastors uh, where we talked about loving our city. Um, We learned a couple weeks ago that the food bank 
um, has distributed over 100,000 pounds of food through churches. And on that call, no one came up and said, well, you know, we've, we've done 20,000 of that. There was none of that. Westchester's been a very small part of that. And I'm so grateful that we just get to see the love of God extended out of our doors. So that when people come here, they receive a box of food and they're prayed with. And that's happening at churches all over our city, that people are being prayed with and shown the love of God. And let's celebrate that. So those are the things that can move us backwards. Let's look at the things that can move us forward. And the first thing is biblical humility. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Marcus Bachmuller says this, the biblical view of humility is precisely not feigned or groveling, nor sanctimonious or pathetic lack of self-esteem, but rather a mark of moral strength and integrity. It involves an unadorned acknowledgement of one's own creaturely inadequacies and entrusting one's fortunes to God rather than to one's own abilities and resources. Biblical humility is this. It's not saying woe is me. It's not saying pathetic is me. It's saying look how great God is. And in light of the greatness of God, I know who I am. And who I am is not king of the world. It's not king of my family. It's not king of my church. It's not king of my city. It's, it's not even king of my backyard or my shed. It's I'm a child of God. I am humble and I want to look at others as more significant than myself. And there's two looking at others here. We look at others as more significant than ourselves, and then we look at their interests instead of our own. So the first one, how do we look at others as more significant than ourselves? Here's, the, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of all the things that are true of you because of your identity in Christ. You are salt of the earth. You are a child of God. You are a co-heir with Christ. Now I want you to... If you're in a room with other people, I want you to look at the other believers in your room. If you're home, I want you to think of the other people that you're close with here at Westchester. And I want you to, I want you to impose the identity in Christ that they have. And look at that person. Say, that person is a co-heir with Christ. That person is so loved by God that while they were a sinner, Christ died for them. That person is alive on the inside with the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in them. Now, how is it not an honor to serve that person? That person is made in God's likeness. It is such a privilege to get them a glass of water. It is such a privilege to serve their gospel ambition. And looking out for the interest, while we all have the instruction and invitation to follow Jesus, following his teaching and his example to be followers of Jesus, when it comes to looking out for the interests of others and how Jesus looked out for the interests of his disciples, of the crowds, of you, Jesus came to speak and save. And I'm, I, I, I don't want to say too much about his incarnation now because we're going to get to that, except to point us to the command that Jesus gave us in John 13. The command our rabbi gave us, our teacher gave us, that as he has loved us, so we should love one another. And think of how Jesus has loved you. How has Jesus loved you? He's done so much for you. He came down to earth. He died on the cross for a sin. He lived a sinless life before that. He served quietly and humbly. Love one another as Jesus has loved you. It is impossible to do that while not looking to the interests of others. 
This is a call for the church to have mutual submission between the believers and for the believers to seek out being a blessing to one another. So this, two, this uh, going forward while avoiding reverse, staying in drive while avoiding reverse, this has a couple impacts on us right now. One is how we regather, how we come back together. In our church, the elders and I, the pastors and I have been talking to you. And the, and the spectrum of our church goes from uh, we should be back together full force already, uh, possibly, or, or at least be back at, at least halfway by now um, to, to gathering together, halfway back to that, being, being together on Sundays again, to maybe in July or August we'll be able to look at that. And we have everyone in between. This is a really hard time, and there's a lot of views, and like everything else in our country, it's becoming polarized and politically charged, and let's just take a step back in humility, look to the interests of others, look to the interests of those who need fellowship, who need to see more people more than you need to see them. Maybe you see them at work. Maybe you have a big family, and you feel that fellowship. Well, you have that met more than some other people in the church. Maybe you're eager to get back and you're not realizing some other people have some really complicated health histories and they're really worried. Or someone they live with or see regularly has really complicated health histories and they're really worried about that. Let's care for each other. Let's submit to one another. Let's look to each other's interests. And how we move forward in reaching our community and our nations. If we reach out to our community and our community starts getting saved, our church is going to start changing a lot. And it's going to have an impact on a lot of things. How flexible are we going to be moving forward? How humble are we going to be moving forward with that? I pray, Lord, that you would let us be very humble in that. This is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's about getting to the heart of Jesus. The goal of any disciple is to become his rabbi, to become a carbon copy of his or her rabbi, to eat like them, to walk like them, to think like them, to talk like them. Paul is helping us become like our rabbi. He's telling Christians, get this, follow Jesus. Follow his example. Do the things he did. In humility, count others better than yourself. And the reason I say that is because the next thing we do is we find Christ-like unity by being Christ-like. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on in 6 to 11, what we're going to get to next week, to talk about Jesus being very nature God, not going after that, but humbling himself becoming a man, found in human likeness, dying on a cross, and then God exalting him to the glory of God the Father. Not to the glory of Jesus, but to the glory of God the Father. We need to think like our Savior. And that starts with following his example. Also in John 13 is when Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi in the upper room, set aside his outer garment and washed the feet of the disciples. He said, no, no student is greater than his teacher. No servant is greater than his master. You should go do what I just did. Take on the lowest form you can. Also to realize, like what Jesus did with the incarnation, being very nature God, considering nothing to be grasped, my rights are of no consequence. I'm going to lay those down. I'm going to think like Jesus. I'm going to put my rights aside. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of whatever it is that you think I deserve it. What is it that you think you deserve? Is it... Uh, peace and quiet in your home from now, every now and then? Is it uh, a dessert? Is it, a, is it being treated a certain way by people in your house? Is it being treated a certain way by people at work or people in church? I want you to think of that feeling, I deserve blank, and then lay it down. I'm going to lay that down for the purpose of serving someone else. 
I'm going to lay down what I think I deserve for the purpose of someone else around me. It's putting God's glory above my own. Jesus, knowing his own glory, submitted to the Father's glory. How much less is my glory than the Father's? Jesus was very nature God, laid that down. How much more do I need to lay down my sense of glory for God's? The most Christ-like thing we can do is completely sell out for the glory of God. I'm going to put all, I'm, I'm all in on the glory of God. If the glory of God means I need to fast for a few days and find out what to do next, that's what I'm going to do. If the glory of God means I need to sell everything and move halfway across the world, that's what I'm going to do. If the glory of God means I need to move into the urban core of the city, that's what I'm going to do. If the glory of God means I need to take time to disciple my children, that's what I'm going to do. If the glory of God means I need to start memorizing the Bible to get Scripture into my head and get rid of all the filth I've been putting in there instead this whole time, that's what I'm going to do. And I want you to think and pray about this. What can God do with a church who thinks with the mind of Christ? In 1883, 16 people got together down at Penn and Lyon in Des Moines and started praying together and reading the Bible, and they planted a church. They weren't trying to change the world. They were just trying to follow God. And over and over since then, there's been groups of people who have gotten together saying, we have this unique situation. How do we follow God in this? And in that time, a whole lot of people have come to know Christ. A whole lot of people have gone out to tell people about Jesus in the States and around the world. And now, a whole lot of people are in their homes doing a thing called worship at home, that's not as much fun as being together, but they want to see the glory of God. And so what is it like? What can God do with a church like Westchester if our minds are like Christ, if we think like Christ and act like Christ and work to become like our rabbi? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you change us? Would you make us more like your son? Would you honor your own name through us? Lord, help us to lay ourselves down for each other and ultimately for you and your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.